Hello, listeners, and welcome to the NK News podcast, recorded via Skype on Friday, December 27, 2019. I'm in Seoul, and my guest today, Professor Sakata Yasuyo, is in Tokyo. Don't forget, listeners, if you need some belated Christmas or New Year gift ideas, please go to nkshop.org and use the code PODCAST at the checkout to enjoy a $10 discount voucher. So to introduce my guest today, Professor Sakata Yasuyo is Professor of International Relations at the Kanda University of International Studies in Japan. She specializes in Korean Peninsula and Northeast Asian security with a focus on the U.S. Rock Alliance and U.S. Rock Japan Security Corporation. She frequently comments in Japanese and international media. For example, her op-eds have been published by Kyoto News, and she has been quoted by Bloomberg, and she's traveled to New York, Paris, Berlin, Singapore, and New Delhi to give talks on Japan and the Korean Peninsula issues, for example, at the European Council of Foreign Relations and the National Committee on American Foreign Policy. Thank you very much for joining me today, Professor Sakata. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me on the program. All right, so let's start with the uh, recent news. Earlier this week, China hosted a series of meetings in Beijing and Chengdu. Specifically, uh, President Xi Jinping had two bilateral meetings, one each with the leader of Japan and Korea on Monday. Then there was a trilateral Japan-China-Korea, or CJK, summit uh, hosted by Chinese Prime Minister Li Keqiang on Tuesday morning. And then on Tuesday afternoon, Prime Minister Abe and President Moon had their own bilateral summit in Chengdu. So of those three meetings, which one was the most interesting and significant in terms of East Asian security, as well as the Japan-Korea relationship? Yes, this week uh, in East Asia, um, we're very busy with the CJK, what we call the CJK summit, um, the China-Japan-Korea summit and all the, the uh, summitry and diplomacy there in uh, China. And all of those um, meetings uh, are of um, importance in its own in its own way. But um, for Japanese um or East Asia and Japanese um, diplomacy. First, the Abe Sea Summit um, and was very important um, because President Xi is going to come to um, Japan uh, next spring. And strategically speaking, um, Japan-China relations, you know, are important. Um, so that's uh, that was one. But um, the media uh, was also very focused, also on the. Um, needless to say, the Japan-Korea summit or the Prime Minister Abe and the President um, uh, Moon Jae-in summit, because you know it's been it's been almost a year and three months, by the way, uh, since they met bilaterally, and that is not a very good situation. So, but um, personally, uh, as an expert, I'm also in, I was also interested in what kind of outcomes that would come out from the trilateral CJK um, summit, uh, which was uh, done with um, Prime Minister um, Lee Ke. Yes, so that's uh, that's my first take on it. Mm. What outcomes did you see that you had been hoping to see, and was there anything that surprised or disappointed you? Well, just focusing on the Japan-Korea, the Abe um, Moon Summit, um, nobody really had high expectations for any um, concrete outcome to come out of that summit because they just met in, in about a year or so um, after uh, having such a bad relationship since um, this summer. So the important point was that they met, these two leaders met, and they talked and with their entourage. And they did discuss um, or, or exchange opinions um, directly on um, issues of contention uh, among uh, between the two countries at this point. So that's one um, point that was um, really focused on. So no, nothing surprising, nothing disappointing. <laughs> hmm. That's uh, my take on it. Was the idea of uh, early sanctions relief for North Korea discussed? 
I'm not sure about that, but it wasn't, um, you know, highlighted in any um, in any in any in any way that is. But I'm sure the issue was discussed in Japan, China, or um, the uh, China Korea or the Japan Korea bilateral summits. But uh, it wasn't highlighted. Mm. Um, but the fact that um, they uh, mentioned, you know, UN Security Council resolutions and so forth is that um, you know we, we have to coordinate our approach on sanctions um, and um, but also on diplomacy so you know sanctions is the only leverage that we really could use and so Japan is very um, cautious on this I think it was a point that summits were a point of um, checking on each other <laughs> and um, and coordinating so that's the only answer I can give you at this point yeah and there was a uh, a statement released uh, after the CJK trilateral uh, summit yeah began. It was a 4.5-page trilateral cooperation vision for the next decade, which you uh, you kindly shared the link uh, to the uh, statement on the Japanese Foreign Ministry website with me. I'm going to read out a little bit from that statement that is relevant to the Korean Peninsula. Quote, we will enhance communication on strategic issues and political mutual trust in the spirit of mutual respect, manage differences properly, and develop long-term relations of peace and friendship. We are committed to the complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. We reaffirm that maintaining peace and stability on the Korean Peninsula as well as in Northeast Asia is in our common interest and sorry is our common interest and responsibility. In this regard, we recall the joint statement on the 2018 Inter-Korean Summit by the leaders of Japan, the People's Republic of China, and the Republic of Korea. Endeavoring to achieve peace, security, and prosperity on the Korean Peninsula. We stress that it is only the international cooperation, including dialogue and diplomacy on and the comprehensive resolution of concerns of the parties in accordance with relevant United Nations Security Council resolutions that can achieve the complete denuclearization and permanent peace on the Korean Peninsula. The leaders of the People's Republic of China and the Republic of Korea hope that the abductions issue between Japan and the DPRK will be resolved through dialogue as soon as possible. End quote. Okay, so that's a, a long quote there from a 4.5-page statement. Uh, is there anything new here in this? Um, first of all, if I may, um, on the on the trilateral cooperation vision of the next decade, this this 4.5-page document, um, you know, Korean Peninsula issue is just one paragraph out of how many paragraphs are in there, right? There's so many paragraphs and so many um, agreements. Um, it's, it's more focused on economy and, and so forth. But Korean Peninsula is always um, taken up. Uh, in the CJK summit, and so, so it's just one paragraph, um, but an important paragraph. And is there anything new here in this statement? Um, not really. It's the usual uh, statement that the templates is there, <laughs> and um, this is what they use. So it's it's nothing new. That's one. If I uh, may, may mention something, if there's any significance about this statement, even if the template is still the same, we have to read it within the context of the situation now, right? So the fact that uh, the three countries together confirm these principles of peace and stability on the Korean Peninsula and in Northeast Asia is important. And they reaffirmed the inter-Korean summit, the Panmunjong statement of 2018. So you know, that's important. When you get down to the, the latter half of that paragraph that you just read to us, um, yes. one, one part is, um, is more about coming out from China. 
and the other part is coming out from Japan. Mm. <laughs> and South Korea is kind of in between, you know. So when you said, um, when you read, uh, endeavoring to achieve peace and peace, security, and prosperity on the Korean Peninsula, and stress that um, dialogue and diplomacy is important. That's coming out from China. But it has to be based on comprehensive resolution of concerns of the parties. So that's coming out from Japan. And in accordance with the relevant United Nations Security Council resolutions, that's coming out from Japan, right? Which it says is to achieve complete denuclearization and permanent peace on the Korean Peninsula. So the denuclearization part is um, Japan and, of course, Korea. and But permanent peace on the Korean Peninsula, that's coming out from South Korea. So all the how do you say the concerns of the parties are are weaved into that particular sentence, and that's where we are. The abductions issues. This is always mentioned, also. Ah, uh, it's always mentioned. Okay. Yes. So it's nothing new, but the fact that it was um it was uh put into that paragraph again, and uh, which means that um you know South Korea, uh, China, and South Korea will um help and facilitate the issue. Um, on the Japanese abductees issue, so that's mm. uh, that's a good point for uh, the trilateral cooperation. Okay, yeah, we're definitely going to talk about the uh, the abductions a little bit later on when we focus on uh, Japan's relationship with North Korea. Uh, to what extent do you think Japan can rely on uh, cooperation from China and South Korea in in resolving the issues of both abductions and nuclear weapons? Well, abductions and nuclear weapons are. <laughs> Issues are very different issues, as you know, and and basically, you know, China can only facilitate your help. China would not be a critical uh, player mm. in terms of um, denuclearization itself, yeah. but they are important in keeping the environment stable and um, putting pressure on North Korea if need be, um, because they hold the key to sanctions, right, and um, and also. Um, preventing war on the Korean Peninsula. Um, in that way, China's important, but would they be critical in actually getting the ne- denuclearization, um, you know, um, process and so forth? Um, that's that's a that's a question being. Um, and abductions issue the same thing. This is basically a bilateral Japan North Korea issue, and China can only facilitate. Okay. Now we have a, a few days left before the end of this year. Um, uh, there is supposed to be some kind of DPRK Korean Workers' Party plenum or a uh, a full meeting. I don't really know what the size of that is. But anyway, it's supposed to happen sometime between now and the end of 2019. Right. Um, and there's also been this talk about, uh, you know, a deadline for the end of this year that mm-hmm. Kim Jong-un has set to, to basically change things or turn things around mm-hmm. uh, before something, you know, something maybe nasty happens. And he's talked about what kind of Christmas present he gives will depend on um, you know, actions by America. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you expect anything coming out of this plenum? Well, we don't know the Chris, uh, the so-called Christmas present in terms of a, a missile test and so forth did not come out. So, and experts here have said yes and no to it. Um, so that's one. But we should be watching the party plenum and see what they come out with. We'll, we'll have to see whether Kim Jong-un and the party will come out with a new line or not. Yeah. Uh, that's what they've been saying since January this January this year's in this January year, New Year's speech, right? Right. And they, in their own way, will look back on 2019 and say, shall we go on and, you know, forget about the United States or and, you know, take a new line or... Or not, right? My analysis would be that they will. They, I think, they will still keep uh, the dialogue track 
um, they still want to keep the yep. dialogue track with the uh, U.S. DPRK or rather the Trump um, Kim um, you know channel, um, and they're watching the U.S. politics, you know, the impeachment and the elections and all that. But um, they're still watching, I think. Uh, I, well, I can't really make a, a, a 100%, you know, guess. Nobody can do that. But um, they will uh, basically keep the same line as 2019, you know, keep the dialogue going or at least keep the channel open and, and see if they can get anything out of the United States or the U.S. DPRK talks. But they might be a little bit more... Um, um, how do you say, bringing up their their own pressure upon the United States right. in terms of um, not not a real not a real ICBM test, but you know they will show that they could they could you know proceed with um, ICBM development through what they did in December, the two tests, mm-hmm. um, these these engine tests and so forth. So I think they'll try to make their own balance between um, keeping the channel open, yeah. but also bringing up the pressure. And maybe being a little bit more friendly to China and Russia. And we also have, of course, on January 1st, next week, Wednesday, uh, or the, the day after this podcast is released, there'll be uh, usually a speech from Kim Jong-un for the new year laying out his policies. Uh, and we'll put together a, a special episode of the podcast just looking at his speech because that's you know, generally a, a pretty important document. Yeah, um, but if I may, if I may oh, yeah. make one point, um, we've been all we've all been looking at the January speech, right? The uh, New Year's speech, which is important, but we also have to um, look at Kim Jong Un's new style of um, using these um, party plenums uh, and um, you know military committees. He he usually makes important speeches there. Like this year was April, right? You know, set the end of the year deadline and and so forth. So. Um, we have to be looking at both these these um, party party speeches, um, party plenum or party committee speeches, and and the uh, January New Year speeches. It's, it's I think it's a very kind of a, a new style of um, decision making process um, in North Korea. Yeah, he had a uh, a meeting of senior members of the military commission uh, just earlier this week. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So that's a military line. Okay. Which, which, which they said, if I may, um, that um, they will uh, strengthen their nuclear strategic deterrent. But at the same time, we'll have to look at the uh, Workers' Party plenum and see what kind of um, policy line they come out from in terms of diplomacy. See, so it, it's a set. And so that's what we have to be looking at. And, and the, probably those lines will come out some in some way in the New Year's um, um, speech that Kim Jong-un will give. Okay, Professor Sakata, let's move back a little bit, take a look at the big picture now. Uh, there is a famous quote that I often see in history books from Major Clemens Meckel, a Prussian advisor to the Imperial Japanese Army Staff College uh, and to the uh, Meiji government in or around 1885. Uh, he's quoted to have said, uh, Korea is a dagger thrust at the heart of Japan. How does Japan view the Korean Peninsula in a geopolitical sense today? Is it still an ever-present and permanent potential danger? Yes, um, that famous quote by Major Meckel's speech is actually kind of being revived in a way. Or, I mean, we're, uh, partly it's not the 19th century politics, but balance of power politics is coming back. So in that sense, um, the, the fact that you mentioned that is uh, actually um, kind of meaningful. And um, in um, Japan, uh, we also have another famous Meiji diplomat, uh, Mutsu Munemitsu. Uh, Mutsu is the last name. Um, he was the d- dip- diplomat for um, 
the China-Sino-Japanese war and the negotiations after that and so forth. So he's very famous, has a very famous book out, um, Mutsumune Mitsu, Kenkenroku. And that also shows Japan's, um, how to say, power politics, balance of power perspectives on um, Korean Peninsula and China and Northeast Asia. So, you know, uh, Major Clemens Meckel and Mutsumune Mitsu are probably on the same, on the same par, so to speak. Um, in this way. And so as to your question, how does Japan view the Korean Peninsula uh, geopolitically today is that, yes, uh, any Korean contingency uh, will affect Japan's um, security. So in that sense, you know, Korean Peninsula is still, um, I wouldn't say a dagger, but but, but a concern on Japan's um, flank, so to speak. It's also, but in but it's, it's we have a new dimension where um, you know North Korea's missile um, program, nuclear missile program, um, has uh, made you know progress, and now Japan's you know islands is pretty much under its uh, uh, its program. So it's not just a Korea contingency, but Japan is also very worried about a Japan contingency, you know, directly from North Korea. So it's a very different situation from, you know, 10 or 20 years ago. It's an ever-present and um, uh, potential danger, so to speak, even in the 21st century today. Does the Japanese government have a view or a policy on inter-Korean relations? I'm just wondering what the uh, Japanese government is prepared to accept in terms of inter-Korean cooperation and trust building. Yeah, that's a, actually that's a pretty difficult question, actually, because um, Japan is not, of course, part directly part of that inter-Korean process. Um, but we do want, as um, as in the CJK statement said, uh, the trilateral statement that you just read yes. said that peace and security on the Korean Peninsula is important. Okay, but and also be, prosperity. Yes, yes, <laughs> and. Um, and Japan is willing to, you know, make its um, contribution uh, to prosperity on the Korean Peninsula as well in terms of, uh, you know, assistance, economic assistance, to, uh, cooperation with North Korea. But there are conditions, right? And um, so, but in terms of um, your question on inter-Korea relations, um, all we can say is that um, we're just closely watching, you know, carefully watching to see uh, what the conditions are for inter-Korean cooperation. It has to be designed in a way that um, it will uh, lead to denuclearization, but also, you know, we don't want a Korean contingency happening. So, you know, we have to keep um, armistice and um, alliance security, uh, you know, viable. So, you know, there are many conditions to which Japan would add to um, inter-Korean relations process. Is there a, a level or a kind or a speed of cooperation that would potentially displease or disturb the Japanese government? Well, for example, uh, you know, Kaesong or uh, these, um, you the know, Kaesong industrial complex. Yeah. And so these types of inter-Korea um, economic cooperation projects that really would affect um, these sanctions would uh, be a case in point where Japan would be making a voice on it. So as long as it's it can be accepted uh, within the sanctions regime, um, that's one um, condition that Japan would be looking for. Mm. Uh, there are a lot of people in Korea uh, who believe that uh, Prime Minister Abe in particular, uh, and Japan in general, wants to see the two Koreas remain separate countries forever. Is that a fair assessment? 
I don't I don't think it's a fair assessment. <laughs> it depends on the circumstances, right? Mm. I mean, for all government. Mm -hmm. And so South Korea is very important uh, for Japan in that case, um, and United States as well. And that um, they don't totally come under Chinese Chinese influence, uh, to be to be frank. So that's that's another point when we say free and independent. It's it's, it's not a matter matter of do we want the two Koreas to be to remain separate separate countries forever. It's not a yes or no question. This just it depends depends on the circumstances. And also we don't want um, an anti Japan you know not not friendly to Japan Korea. So mm. we have to be careful about that. And you know there's many conditions to you know um, what we see as a uh, as a favorable situation uh, of a unified Korea. How would you uh, briefly describe Japan's relations with South Korea right at the moment? It's not as bad as before. Uh, the, what we say it was the worst in the post-war post-war history of Korea-Japan relations. Uh, that was uh, from the summer in August, July, August to October. Uh, September, October, November, uh, when we had the uh, the laborers issue, the Korean laborers issue, and then we had the export control issue, and then we have the GSAMI on top of that, and also WTO, by the way, and you know all these issues just amalgamated into you know a whole crisis of um, Japan South Korea relations. So um, that was uh, from the summer to to autumn or November of this year. So, Would you really say that that was the, the worst that uh, Japan-Korea relations have been since uh, since 1945? Well, actually, I, I should say 1965, um, since we had the normalization of Japan-Korea relations. So maybe I should put it there. But I was just reading about the incident, I think it was 1975, if I have my year correct, when uh, the wife of President Park Chung-hee was assassinated or killed by accident uh, in, a, in a shooting here in, uh, in Seoul. Park Chung-hee's reaction to that uh, brought Korea and Japan relations to, uh, to me, it looked like almost a worse stage. I mean, they, it was, you know, the, the ambassador was at the point of being expelled. Um, it was uh, very, very bad. And I just wonder whether things were that bad this year or whether it just mm. sounded that bad. Mm -hmm. The point is that um, you know, Japan and Korea always had history issues, but this year that affected the economic as well as the security um, areas of cooperation, which were never really, you know, um, it never really spilled over into the history, the difference of opinions and, and the conflicts we had over the history issues had never really permeated, you know, um, defense and security cooperation as well as economic cooperation. But this year, for the first time, the history issue affected the economy as well as the um, as the defense areas. So, so that was an all-time low um, since 1965. But I would also say that um, I said from the summer to autumn this year, it really started from October last year from the uh, the labor's issue. Uh, uh, judge, uh, judgment made by the uh, South Korean courts. So it was all percolating since um, last October. Okay, let's talk about GSOMIA. Not all of our listeners will know uh, what it is. It stands for the General Security of Military Information Agreement. Uh, when did this information come into effect and what did it do? Mm -hmm. GSOMIA is kind of like the symbolic issue that affected the security relationship between not just Japan and Korea, but also the trilateral US, Japan, Korea. 
security cooperation. So this was actually a very important issue, which came up in August when South Korea decided to, uh, South Korea government decided to um, to terminate the agreement. But the GSAMIA um, was uh, signed in 2016 of November um, during the Park Kune and the Abe government. What happens is, and it's it's a, it has to be renewed every year. Plus, uh, each party has to say we'll uh, we'll continue the agreement um, in August. Okay, and then. Okay, but what did the agreement actually do? Uh, and it's just the agreement to when the two countries, you know, share military intel. It's just an insurance. It's kind of like an insurance agreement where there's all these processes where this, the uh, security intelligence will be, um, how do you say, uh, protected. Mm. So it's just a general agreement on the uh, security of military intelligence, as GSAMIA is uh, says. So it's just a general agreement to protect the military intelligence. Okay. Now, even though it's not an actual alliance between Korea and Japan, is it the next best thing to an alliance? We're not a formal alliance. Japan-Korea is not a formal alliance, um, but it, it is actually informal or what um, Victor Cha, uh, the professor in America, U.S. US professor, um, has said, uh, a virtual or actually quasi-alliance or what CSIS Pacific Forum uh, has said, virtual alliance. So that's where we are. You know, basically it's U.S.-Rock alliance and U.S.-Japan alliance and we we cooperate, you know, inter-alliance cooperation is what the virtual alliance means. Um, so, but there is no Japan-Korea formal agreement, but GSAMIA is one of the things that could institutionalize, right, defense cooperation. I and mean, we could be having things like um, what we call AXA, ACSA, which is a logistics cooperation agreement, or, you know, these are things that other countries usually do, but mm -hmm. right now we only have GSAMIA as an institutional agreement. So it's very important symbolically, as well as day-to-day, um, -day, you know, military intelligence. Now, if GSOMIA is a bilateral agreement between South Korea and Japan only, why is the U.S. interested in it? The U.S. is of course, interested in it because um, Japan and Korea cannot deter and defend vis-a-vis uh, -vis North Korea without the United States. You know, it's based on the U.S. U.S. alliance cooperation. So, and and it's 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 really the U.S. that was very 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 frustrated and got angry with the Jisamia decision. I think they really worked really hard, the people in defense and State Department, to really um put it back on the you know put it put it back in, into its own place, so to speak. And that's what they did um, from August to November. Yeah, you explained that every year the uh, the two countries have to agree to renew the relationship, uh, the, uh, the agreement, uh, and that that's expressed in August. And in August this year, South Korea's government announced its intention to cancel the agreement or to let it lapse. Yeah, that uh, was then, really a surprise, yes. <laughs> and then ultimately at the last minute on Friday, November 22nd, just hours before the agreement was due to become null and void, the uh, yes. ROC government announced its decision to keep it going for another year. What effect did this have in Japan? Um, they didn't say keep it going for another year. Oh, um, but But yes, um, they didn't exactly say that. But um, they said it's conditional, right? It's mm. conditional um, based on other things. Um, they want export control, something, some movement on export control, the South Korean government. But of course, in reality, the U.S., uh, it's the United States will be watching, and and de facto, it's it has to it has to continue, you know. And South Korean government um, 
did position itself uh, in that um, the GSAMIA continuation will is conditional, you know, uh, related to other issues, basically the export control. So they have unfortunately linked the issues together. Mm. But um, um, Japan, Korea finally did uh, resume its bilateral talks, yes. director level talks um, in December uh, this month, right before the, su- the summit, the Korean Japan summit. And mm. they're on talking mode now. So, and they are of the understanding of what they need to do, um, uh, what South Korea needs to do in order to dispense uh, Japan's suspicions on South Korea's um, um, expert control of uh, how do you say, policies and systems. And, you know, we're working it out. I think they'll work it out. It'll take time. Now, the United States has also been pressing South Korea to pay much more money for the cost of stationing U.S. troops in Korea and including Korea in its defense coverage. Has the United States also been pressing Japan to do the same? There's not much out in the media um, on the U.S.-Japan um, defense cost issues because it hasn't it hasn't started yet. But mm. but Japan is closely watching the U.S., uh, South Korea, the SMA, the Special Measures Agreement, the defense yeah. cost negotiations. I saw in a news uh, report um, this past few days that the United States might be a little bit more uh, reasonable on um, uh, not asking for five times more. But right, I saw a report today a in less. the uh, in the local yeah. media that uh, the United States might be happy with simply a ten. 10- percent uh, payment increase <laughs> yes. from South Korea yes. rather than going from one billion to five yes. billion dollars, <laughs> yes. uh, which, as you say, is a five time increase. How often does Japan have to negotiate its uh, version of the special measures agreement with the United States? Is that annually or every five years or something different? We still have the, the old agreement of five years. I think it's five years. I, we should check on that. But um, it's a multi-year agreement, okay. okay. But that that will that will expire, and so that's why we have to. U.S. and Japan also have to um, renegotiate starting this year. Yes, so that's when um, we'll see if America will ask for mm. uh, a one-year agreement, like South Korea, or not, and also the the uh, the, the costs and so forth. So we're watching. I would also like to say that the U.S., um, back in November, um, they were pressuring South Korea on GSAMIA to get back to GSAMIA. And also they were pressuring on the cost defense issue. But also there's some positive movements on on the Indo-Pacific, what we call the Indo-Pacific platform. The United States and South Korea did agree to make a joint fact sheet Mm -hmm. on um, economic projects on the Indo-Pacific and South Korea has also been a little bit more um, open to linking itself to the Indo-Pacific um, concept. Maybe you've heard about South Korea's new Southern policy, yes. which basically connects itself to ASEAN and India and so forth. So it's basically the um, South Korea's version of Indo-Pacific concept, Korean Open Indo-Pacific, the FOIP concept. So. You know, we see a little bit of a, a kind of a rebalancing of South Korea's position, you know, between the continent, the Korean, uh, sorry, the uh, Russia, China, Korean Peninsula, North Korea Corporation. They're putting a little bit more, um, how do you say, they're not putting all the eggs into one basket, yeah. the, the northern side, but they're starting to put a couple more eggs into their uh, new southern policy. Um, where they show the maritime, the uh, ASEAN, India. So, and U.S. and South Korea, uh, actually U.S. has been asking South Korea to be a little bit more um, openly committed to the Indo-Pacific concept. And 
um, they have been making these, um, how do you say, movements. Um, so it's kind of pressure, but it's also engagement. Do we know how China feels about that? There hasn't been any um, new response, as far as I know, uh, from China on this. But if we go back to this CJK, when you look at the trilateral joint vision statement, uh, it does address um, infrastructure development, RCEP, and all that stuff um, about economy, where the China, Japan, and Korea will be cooperating on inc- on e- economic areas. It doesn't. Say, it does not say Indo-Pacific, of course, but it also does not say One Belt One Road. You know, I think there's areas of um, they're trying to figure out where they can cooperate in the economic sphere. How do you see things going forward between South Korea and Japan in terms of security cooperation? There's so many issues still left, the, the, you know, the radar incidents and the uh, the flag issue and all that. You know, there's still skepticism on the Japan side as well, but but we're all realistic. You know, North Korea issues coming up again. Um, um, probably tensions will uh, come up again still again in 2020. Um, so I think we're being realistic about this. And so U.S., Iraq, Japan, trilateral security cooperation will, will be intact. But I think we'll be um, carefully trying to promote and resume um, defense cooperation. So that's all I can say. We have to keep GSAMIA intact. That's one important condition um, that we have to uh, be um, careful about. And you're hopeful that that can happen? Yes, I think the, uh, if we can make, if Korea and Japan can make movement on the expert control issue, it will, uh, you know, will go in parallel. But unfortunately, the uh, Korean labor's issue, this is the most important, most difficult issue to, to tackle. You know, there's many um, points. That's the issue of compensation for forced laborers during uh, World War II. Yes. And so, you know, what we're worried about is the, uh, the, the uh, liquidation of assets, um, uh, that's part of the whole court ruling and all that. And um, so that might come up in February or not. And the elections in April in South Korea, President Moon, the Moon government is watching that. So there's a lot of um, careful uh, balancing of Korea-Japan relations and how to manage careful. Ma- we have to be um, be careful about how to manage these issues, um, especially in the early months of next year. There certainly are a lot of moving parts. I'd, I'd like to, to talk now about Japan's relations with the DPRK or North Korea. Uh, in September 2002, a little over 17 years ago, then Japanese Prime Minister Koizumi visited North Korea and met with the then leader Kim Jong-il. And at that time, there was some hope for normalized relations between the two nations. Meanwhile, at the end of November this year, the North Korean state media said Japan, quote, may see what a real ballistic missile is in the not distant future, unquote. Mm-hmm. It also said that Prime Minister Abe is quote, none other than a perfect imbecile and a political dwarf, unquote. So why are things so different now? What is the current state of Japan-DPRK relations? Actually, there's no real new movement uh, in Japan-DPRK uh, relations. I know, but 17 years ago, there was such hope. And now oh, we're, yes, we're yes, hopeless. Yes. But, you know, after, you know, 2002, or to be more specific, 2004, when Koizumi, uh, Prime Minister Koizumi was there, after that, things have been deteriorating. So 
um, there's not really much movement since then. Mm. Um, so nothing has really changed since then. Um, there's one movement about the abductees in 2014, the, the Stockholm Agreement, um, where they tried to deal with it and make progress, but that failed in about a year or so because a nuclear issue came up. So it's really the nuclear issue that's really um, holding us back. So the situation hasn't really changed uh, since since then. Mm. North Koreans are, you know, giving Prime Minister Abe, you know, you know, really these bad um, words, but that's what they do when they're frustrated. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, they can't really, you know, criticize President Trump or any other leaders um, at this point. So, so Abe you know, is just an easy target. <laughs> yes, right. they pick on Japan. Um, now, earlier this year in May, Prime Minister Abe announced that he was ready to meet Kim Jong Un without preconditions. Uh, mm, it, yes, it, it took almost a month before North Korea scathingly attacked Japan in its media, rejecting any concept of a meeting. Is there any possibility for improvement? in Japan-DPRK relations as long as Shinzo Abe remains prime minister? Well, we'll have to see. Prime Minister Abe's, um, uh, how do you say, a forward-looking um, movement uh, in May about, you know, meeting Kim Jong-un without preconditions. That was, mm. you know, one small step that um, Prime Minister Abe did take. Um, but I think he has reverted back to his old position since September. Well, he hasn't um, rescinded his uh, his statement about um, meeting Kim Jong-un without preconditions, but it's about, you know, how to deal with the abductees and the uh, normalization talks, which, which includes, you know, economic cooperation and so forth. So I think from September, um, he has reverted kind of back to his... Um, more um, safe position where um, it's about um, do you do normalization talks first or do you deal with abductees first? You know, what's the entrance to the talks? And so Prime Minister Abe has reverted back to his September, from September this year, he has reverted back to his position of um, please deal with abductees first and so forth. Okay, let's talk about those abductees. How many are there that are outstanding? How many issues are there that, that we haven't resolved? Well, when you look at the, the government, Japanese government website and so forth, it's yeah. out there. Um, but there's 17 on the official list. One seven. Okay. Yes. But there's this another category of people called missing persons, special, mis- specially designated missing persons, yeah. which is about um, 800 people. This list of people who are who may have been, um, you know, abducted and so forth, but but maybe not. There's about 400 or so people that are listed out of those 800, and um, it's on the National Police Agency website uh-huh. of Japan. But uh, the official list is 17, where they think that they were actually, you know, abducted by North Korea. I'm curious. Do you happen to know uh, when was the most recent? I mean, when was the last officially recognized case of abduction of a, a Japanese citizen by North Korea? Was that? Uh, are we talking, you know, in the last twenty years, or is it sometime before 1990? Do we do we have a, an idea of when that happened? Most recent time? I'm not sure about that, um, but it it's supposed to be over. It's, it's it's no longer happening. That's 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 the that's the assumption or perception or um that we work on. Yes. Okay. Uh, on the uh, denuclearization issue, what's the uh, the view of the Japanese government on the denuclearization of of uh, North Korea? Does it? I mean, obviously, it's it's something that the Japanese government wants, but is mm-hmm. it something that the Japanese government thinks is pragmatically feasible? You know, is it something that can be done? Japan is pretty realistic about it. 
we are of the understand we, we as in the Japanese government of the understanding that it has to be done through pressure pressure and dialogue or based basically based on the sanctions um, regime. But be flexible on the dialogue. But um, the Japanese government is very, very um, cautious mm. on how the uh, the dialogue goes. That is, we're watching. We will support. Japan will support and has has said in the recent um, CJK trilateral summit. Um, Prime Minister Abe has said um, strongly that the USDP, um, the Japan. Um, will support um, USDPRK talks, but it's about the conditions, right? And so we're pretty um, realistic about it. That it has, it's, it's going to be has to be done through a process, you know. And if we can get some kind of, um, how do you say, IAEA or some kind of a verification process, a feasible verification process in place, that's what we would want. Is there any support in Japan for Japan getting its own nuclear weapons? Well, there, there's always um, in any country, you know, there's always people that, you know, say we should have our own nuclear weapons program and so forth. But um, I think that the majority is um, public opinion speaking um, is that we should not have nuclear weapons. Just diplomatically speaking and strategically speaking, it's, it's going to ha- cause more problems than benefits. Yeah, I think there's a realistic calculation that um, we should just keep under the U.S. nuclear umbrella and um, and and keep ourselves as a non-nuclear weapon state and and save the NPT <laughs> non-proliferation treaty regime. Yeah. There's a, there's many calculations which ends up in saying that we should we should stay we should stay non-nuclear. Um, but there is this this tension uh, of um, um, whether we should, you know, be uh, strengthening our extended deterrence capabilities mm-hmm. uh, with the United States and because of the North Korean nuclear threat. So it is real. And we should be more careful about what kind of Japan uh, measures would, would, you know, Japan would be taking. Um, but it's, it all comes out from, you know, the threat that we perceive from North Korea. What are the uh, the current views of the Japanese government on the relationship between the, the North Korea and the U.S. at the moment, especially through the lens of the personal relationship between Donald Trump and Kim Jong Un? It's uh, you know that Prime Minister Abe is well, quote unquote, friends with um, President uh, Trump um, on a friendly relationship, but I think. Um, the reality is that um, yes, they can take pick up a phone and talk and so forth, and which is very important. Um, but it's also a way to um, kind of get Japan's voice into the talks, the the North Korea nuclear talks, and so it's a realistic way of how we deal with the situation. The Abe Trump relationship, um, if I may change the subject a little bit, is it's a product of um, you know benefit and. For both sides, and, and how to influence how to influence each other, you know, through personal diplomacy, because that, that's about the only thing that works uh, with President Trump. We're pretty realistic about that, yeah. So we're watching very carefully what President Trump and and the uh, his relationship with the uh, Chairman Kim Jong Un. Let's fast forward to a year from now. So it's uh, it's after Christmas. It's late 2020. We've had the uh, 70th anniversary of the start of the Korean War, the 55th anniversary of the normalization of um, Korea-Japan relations, the 26th anniversary of the death of Kim Il-sung, and the 9th anniversary of the death of Kim Jong-il. Do you imagine that after all these things next year that we'll still be in a fundamentally you know, in the same place, talking about the same issues, or will we be in a different place? 
<laughs> well, nobody can predict the future, but um, hmm, um, from the past experience, you know, and looking at the uh, the history of um, our relationship uh, with North Korea, you know, nuclear talks and all that, um, I would place my bet on the latter. That is, we won't the same. The, we'll probably be facing the same issues, but maybe there might be a little bit, or hopefully, there might be a little bit more um, progress on the denuclearization talks. Maybe a little bit something more concrete. If that's the case, you know, Japan will be able to come in a little bit more positively. It's the fact that you know Japan is out of the process, which makes Japan very, very um, skeptical. And so it's. I think it would be good for um, South Korea and China and the other countries to you know place Japan into the process in some way, and and then and in that way Japan can play a more constructive role, so to speak. But it's all about keeping up the pressure in in a more pragmatic way, and and then also progressing, making progress with some with the talks, so that you know North Korea's program can be controlled or or you know in some way. So mm. that's where Japan's you know um, role lies. Well, I suppose we have to remain hopeful. Uh, let's leave it there for today. Thank you once again, Professor Sakata Yasuyo, for joining us from Tokyo via Skype. Yes, thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that wraps it up for today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and consider buying a subscription to nknews.org where you will find the best and most up-to-date specialist journalism on all matters related to North Korea. And visit nkshop.org to use the uh, $10 discount voucher to buy your calendars, posters, and postcards for next year. Our thanks, as always, go to James Fretwell and Chad O'Carroll for facilitating this podcast and to Arius Dare, our post-recording producer genius, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, etc. Costs involved in the production of this podcast were partially funded by the Korea, Uni Korea Fund, for which we are extremely grateful.